Hello, LPs. We are posting the audio of our book club Zoom session with Will Thorndike from The Outsiders. Uh, this discussion was just fantastic. Thank you to everyone who joined. The video recording of the Zoom session is online in the LP Google Drive folder, so you can access that there. Um, we have also posted Ben and my notes on the book, On the Outsiders, both online and right here below in the show notes. So feel free to share, copy those, uh, add to them. There's a there's a, a Google Doc version of them in the LP folder that anyone can jump in and add to. And this whole thing, this book club, we're only this is only our second one, but um, the series has just been fantastic. And thank you to everyone who's been joining and asking great questions of these amazing authors. And we want to make it a big part of the special experience for all of you as LPs going forward. So stay tuned for our next announcement of our next session. And with that, on to Will and the Outsiders. To get started, A, Will, thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be awesome. We're like nothing I love better than 8 a.m. on a Friday morning discussing capital allocation <laughs> and outsider CEOs. <laughs> Breakfast and capital is, allocation, yeah. It's great. Um, we thought maybe as a kind of warm-up, um, would ask you a meta question about the book, which is how did it come about? How did you get interested in this question of what made for an outsider CEO a radically successful CEO? And how did you end up writing this book? Yeah, so um, this book grew out of a, a talk that I gave about a dozen years ago at a biannual conference that, so I work in, I'm a private equity investor uh, by profession. And every other year, our firm hosts a conference for our portfolio company CEOs. So that includes sort of the current group of CEOs, as well as alumni, people whose companies we've, we've exited from. And then sort of the farm team of CEOs who we hope to work with. And we gather that group every other year and have sort of a series of speakers. And there's always a headliner speaker. So we've had, you know, Jim Collins and Michael Lewis and Nate Silver, people like that in the past. Um, and then there's always a series of sort of more pragmatic, practical talks. And I raised my hand about a dozen years ago and said, I'll do one of those. And I then had to figure out what I was going to talk about. And I had read and heard about Henry Singleton, you know, this sort of um, CEO from the 60s, 70s, 80s, who had run a conglomerate with extraordinary results. That's really all that I knew. And um, I decided that I'd do sort of a deep dive and profile him and try to share those learnings with our CEOs. And um, we had a Harvard Business School student working for us between years at business school. And I asked, who is excellent, and I asked him if he wanted to do sort of a, an independent study in his second year at HBS to do, do a deep dive into Singleton and his company, Teledyne, and his record. And uh, he, he had been a varsity tennis player in college, so he looked at me and he said, well, unfortunately, I just committed to another independent study, but my doubles partner is looking, right? So by pure serendipity, I got connected with this guy, Aleem Chowdhury, who lives in the Bay Area, who's just a super talented guy. And he'd been a you know Phi Beta in physics at Stanford, and um, he agreed to do this independent study. And what we did is we did an extremely deep analytical dive in the first semester into Teledyne and sort of the comparable group of 60s era conglomerates. It was a comparable group of another seven or eight companies. We did a um, we wrote up the analytical work, and then in the second semester we interviewed everyone alive who'd had anything to do with the company. Unfortunately, Singleton had passed away, but his longtime partner and COO, George Roberts, was still alive in Southern California and a bunch of investors, board members, former employees. And we literally went all around the country and interviewed those people. And um, I went to go write that up to prepare for this talk. And as I was doing that, Aleem came to me and he said, well, there's a really talented guy in the class behind me who's looking for an independent study. And I had just found that whole process to be intellectually way more engaging than I had expected. And so that guy, a guy named John Gilligan, who's now in Chicago, who's one also super talented guy, agreed to do it. And we ended up doing Capital City. So I, I just by happenstance got into this really talented vein of Harvard Business School students 
each of whom did a full year independent study for credit to support research of the chapters. And that's, that sequencing worked for me because I, I had a day job. You know, so I was sort of doing one of these a year. And after about the fourth one, you know, I began to think, hey, you know, maybe this will turn into some sort of a book project. I mean, I was writing them up as I was going along. And after about the fifth or sixth one, it became clear there was this, there was this very strong pattern, which I did not expect. You know, as I was working on it, the model I had in my mind is a great book called The Money Masters. I don't know if any of you guys have read that, but that's a, it's a very good investing book written by a guy named John Train, came out in about 1980. And he just profiled great practitioners who he was aware of. First chapter is on Buffett. It's still a very good introduction to Buffett, you know, 40 years later. But Phil Fisher and John Templeton, and it's, it's a good, but the message of that book is there are many different paths to investing success. And so I, I expected as I was going through and studying these CEOs who had these you know, phenomenal records of relative outperformance versus their peer groups, I expected a variety of approaches, but there was more overlap than I expected. So anyway, the, the book evolved. This is a long answer to your question, David, but oh, this it is great. over time. It took about a year, a chapter, honestly. So for such, such a short wow. book, it took me a really long time, but it was really fun. It was really, it sort of drew me in as it went along. That's so cool. What are your, um, what are some of your uh, independent study HBS research, research students doing now? Yeah, that's a, so they're a um, really talented group that's been fun to keep in contact with. And they generally have coalesced in investing type careers, but, um, but there's variability within that. Some of them have gone down sort of search fund CEO type paths. Um, and but they, they generally are doing, they're generally involved in, you know, allocating capital in some form or other, but more as investors generally, although at least a couple of them went down a CEO type path. That's awesome. What, one um, question, I'm already going to break ranks here and David doesn't know I'm asking this. Uh, is there one or two chapters that almost made the book that didn't? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I did it. I mean, I basically did all of the work for, yeah, that's not true. Maybe 80% of the work for a chapter on Lucadia National. Um, but I didn't end up including it in the book because the CEOs were so reclusive that they wouldn't talk to me. Um, and I felt it was important to speak to every living CEO. Um, so I didn't include it, but it, that's, a, that's a fascinating story. And then I had another sort of chapter that I was researching and I discontinued because the student wasn't doing a good enough job, to be honest. So if it was really important. The way it worked is that first semester, the work we did was really detailed and it was the key to getting the, the interviewees to participate, including the CEOs. They needed to see that, and they, they actually then became very responsive once they saw the depth of work, but the depth of work was key to getting the, uh, getting the interviews. So I had one that was, you know, never, never made it to that second semester. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, we, <laughs> we definitely find the same thing with guests on acquired. <laughs> like, these people are so busy, like they get requests for their time all the time. And most of the requests have not done the work. Yeah. And that, that, that's actually for, that's, uh, that's how the Sequoia episode with Doug Leone came to be was we, we did the first one and then they emailed us and they were like, Oh, we didn't realize you were really serious about how much work you were going to do on this. Like, can, can we be involved now? That's cool. I mean, I did listen to those two episodes. I thought they were excellent. I can, I can see how that first episode would have led to, to Doug getting involved. Yeah. It was, it was really special. Um, all right. Shatish, uh, you are up first. The floor is yours. Uh, yeah. So, I, I guess my my question is really around whether the lessons from the CEOs in the book are more a function of time and place uh, of basically when the CEOs operated in a pre-internet era or are their lessons sort of applicable today to like high-tech uh, 21st century companies right and 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 if so maybe 
kind of what are the metrics that an outsider CEO would look for today, especially given that like optimizing solely for shareholder value is not cool, right? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So I, you know, I might quibble with the, I, I think optimizing for long-term shareholder value should still be cool um, because you know, in order to do that well, you really have to be, you really have to be taking care of all of your stakeholders, all of your constituencies. You know, so if, I, I, I think that it's not inconsistent to be, you know, um, it, it, it implies like loan focus on per share value implies sort of a cold calculating heartless approach to management. I, I don't think that those, I, I don't think that's accurate. So I would just quibble a little bit. I think the objective for any CEO should still be to optimize very long-term per share value, per share value. But in the world of, you know, high tech businesses, you know, I think the, the metrics, the, the near-term metrics that you'd optimize for would be different than the, the metrics these, these, this group of CEOs was optimizing for. Um, you know, if you take a SaaS business, it's super rational to be optimizing around, you know, ARR, you know, ARR growth over time and making sure that your, you know, customer acquisition cost to long-term value math is compelling. Um, you know, I, don't, I think that, that the metrics that um, are going to drive long-term, you know, long-term per share growth are going to come out of the, you know, kind of core, core economic realities of those businesses. So if you have a low churn SaaS business with high gross margins and a compelling ratio between your customer acquisition cost and your long-term value, you should, you should be aggressively growing that. Um, I mean, I would, I would argue, I think Jeff, Jeff Bezos, if you read his letters in sequence, which are excellent, I'm sure many, most of you probably have, there's no question that he's, he's rationally thinking about building long-term per share value, but with a, you know, intense focus on the customer, um, you know, all the way, all the way along. So, I don't, I don't see those, those two as being inconsistent. I think the specific metrics are different. And, and one of the common commonalities across the eight CEOs in the book and one of the markers of this sort of way of thinking about things is CEOs get extra credit for carefully thought out new metrics. You know, people who, who sort of arrived at different ways of crisply thinking about what the core economics are, the core economic objective is in their business that that can be a marker of this if they're blindly using kind of the conventional set of metrics that can be a warning sign that maybe they're not maybe they're not as, as focused on what really what really matters longer term but clearly you know customer you know the the importance of customer retention in any business is paramount but you know the SaaS SaaS model really really highlights that pretty crisply it's amazing those businesses are valued where they are today. I think the most recent thing I saw was 15 times next year's ARR, where the public universe is trading. But you know, so it, it's not like if you if you look at um, like long-term ARR math should ultimately correlate with what you think the, um, the EBITDA margins on those businesses are going to be at maturity, and then they're just exceptional businesses, right? The, the they're super capital efficient. They're super predictable. So they they should ultimately trade at high multiples of end of day free cash flow or EBITDA. So it's not crazy that, I mean, those ARR multiples should be high. 15 times next year, I mean, you need a lot of growth to make that math work, but but they're pretty they're pretty great businesses. Thank you. Just a side note on the, um, you know, sort of, uh, devising and discovering new metrics that uh make sense for for your business so th that story we were talking about it when we were prepping with you will of um john malone inventing ebitda <laughs> like i had no idea that is so cool yeah fair. yeah that EB, that whole concept of ebitda so i'm old enough that i call it ebitda before it was <laughs> together acronym but the whole idea of that came out of the you know came out of the cable television business right and it was the going far enough up the income statement to sort of highlight the recurring discretionary discretionary cash flow. Do, yeah. do you know if John Malone called it? Now I look very knowledgeable to my partners. 
Oops, I, I cut out. I now cut I feel very knowledgeable to my partners if I say EBITDA. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. I think um, your older yeah, now, partners will appreciate it. I think it's sort of a generational <laughs> thing. But yeah, it was originally EBITDA before it was EBITDA. Yeah. Ah, cool. Well, there's also a, like, um, some people say, so I say EBITDA. Some people say EBITDA. And then there's EBITDA. There's like all sorts of ways to pronounce it. Turn, turns out it's not a real word, so you can pronounce it yeah. however you want. We, we had a CEO who named his dog EBITDA. <laughs> we like, we appreciated the focus, but. <laughs> oh, that's great. That is an outsider CEO there. <laughs> well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature a allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Let's see. All right. Uh, Francesca, I think you are up next. Um, I just want to chime in and say I also was shocked by the EBITDA story. I was like, I wish they had told me this in accounting class, but they did not. Uh, but I, I, I really love this book. I, um, I think that at the end, you will, you say that you don't need to be a visionary or a marketing genius to be a great CEO. And that's been my experience, but I've never heard it written in a book before. So thank you. This, this is phenomenal. And the blue ocean thinking around like how to, like, how are people thinking differently? Um, Awesome. So thank you. Uh, but my big question is sort of similar to what was just asked. Um, I mean, now like SaaS companies and uh, reinventing uh, how we interact on the web or the companies that are dominating the stock market um, and shareholder value. But I'm wondering, um, you know, thinking, looking through all the hype, what are some CEOs that would probably fit into the outsiders too? And I know that you probably don't have like four Harvard students looking at this right now and <laughs> otherwise the book would be out. But if you could share some who are doing things under the radar that are really compelling, I would love to hear it. Yeah, of course. So, so um, let's see, I'll try to take through a few of those, Francesca. So a couple of them are mentioned in the book. There's a, a uh, amazing company called Transdime, which focuses on niche aviation component businesses um, and acquiring and, and operating those. It's got a phenomenal long-term record run by a guy named Nick Howley, you know, very, very much along these lines. Um, there are two companies in, you know, cyclical, horrible sounding businesses that um, have generated incredible long-term returns through, you know, 
laser-like capital allocation, including taking advantage of the inherent cyclicality of their businesses and the related stock market trading patterns. So one is a company in the DC area called NVR. It's a home builder. Um, hard to think of a you know, more mundane, cyclical, in many ways difficult business, but they've evolved an entirely different, much less asset intensive model for that. And they've been incredibly savvy in re aggressively repurchasing shares when the whole sector gets pounded in cyclical downturns. So NVR is interesting. There's a company that um, is in the um, auto finance market called Credit Acceptance Corp. Again, subprime, I should say, mostly auto finance. So again, just a horrible industry niche, generally tough economic characteristics, but they've evolved a, um, a, a model that has some, some cost advantages. And then they've been exceptional capital allocators, again, throughout the cycle. So, you know, have generated pretty extraordinary returns. So those are two that are pretty interesting in, in some, you know, out of the way industries. Um, you know, the uh, Constellation software, I know you guys have talked about that on the podcast. Mark, what Mark Leonard's done is just extraordinary over a long period of time and continues to do. You know, the most remarkable, it's like a math problem, Constellation software, and how how can you create that much equity value without using debt and with very little organic growth? Like it's just it's just remarkable. Yeah, basically the zero. amount of equity that went in, which you can trace, and you look at the market cap today, it's it's you know, and he's his organic growth's been four or five percent across that period of time, organic revenue growth. Um, and he's he's only recently begun to use debt, and even now the debt is less, it's around it's one times or less EBITDA. Um so Mark, I mean, Mark Leonard's amazing. Um, you know, the Rails brothers have a pretty extraordinary record at Danaher over time, which is just, you know, sort of on its third iteration. It's an entirely different business than it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, it was a wildly different business than it was 25 years ago. So that, you know, they've, they've sort of proven to be learning machines. And then um, one other one that I'd mention because it's international and you guys have talked about it, at least indirectly, is Naspers. It's just extraordinary how yeah, much totally. value Naspers has created over time through capital allocation. If you remove Tencent from their record, it's still excellent. Now, Tencent is a candidate for the greatest investment ever made. I mean, you guys have talked about it, you know, compellingly, and we'll maybe talk more about it. But Naspers, a big part of what makes Tencent interesting is Naspers is involved in capital allocation there. You know, the, and Naspers had capital allocation DNA that went back way before that to when it was a traditional media company. And it had, a, it had an excellent record, you know, in that era as well. So there's sort of a long history there. And then, so that's a pretty good, that's a, that's a starting list anyway, Francesca. Um, and I, I'm an investor in Transdime, so I was, that was the first one you mentioned. I was like, wow, maybe I have a little Will Thorndike in me. <laughs> that's a phenomenal company, Francesca. I don't know how long you've been invested there, but Almost regardless, it's been great, except maybe the last six months if you started your position then, but it's been, that's just a phenomenal company. One, um, one follow-up I'd love to ask on that uh, is, uh, you, you know, talking about Constellation, Will, I'm curious what you think. I think pretty much every case study in the book, the actual, the operations of the companies were very decentralized but the actual capital allocation was extremely centralized and in many cases just done by one person, the CEO. Yeah. Constellation is an example of totally decentralized capital allocation where it's spread down as far as possible in the organization. You know, probably the number of deals that Mark is involved in out of, I think they've acquired 500 companies now, you know, it's I think his goal is as few as possible. Um, what do you What do you think about that? Do you know any other companies that operate that way? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if you looked at um, from the book, the most acquisitive company in the book was TCI, just in terms of numbers, number of transactions over time. You know, they were literally buying one every two weeks or something like that for a long period of time. Little small cable systems, um, and I think similarly, Malone and Mark evolved an approach where there were clear decision rules and the businesses were predictable enough 
that within those decision, it's, that, that system just worked really well. Um, and it got to the point in TCI where literally on the back of a napkin, you just had to be able to, in TCI, the way it worked is you had to be able to show that any acquisition within a year's time after the effect of the programming discounts, you know, the ability to buy HBO, ESPN with yeah. the purchasing power, within a year, if you were at five times EBITDA, you could do the deal anywhere in the company. That happened to be the amount they, that was also the amount of their leverage, right? So that was those two, those two things were tied together, right? And lenders would often lend against pro forma EBITDA. Mark has sim, I think, you know, if you, that his whole amazing comment about hurdle rates are magnetic. You know, he's set the bar for the hurdle rates and he's set the template that they use internally. And I mean, you get, you know, probability weighting different scenarios and you know, so that he, the decision rules are clear and the bets are typically small. 500 plus acquisitions, average enterprise value is 5 million bucks. It's amazing, right? It's like a yeah. machine. He's created a machine that's to systematically target the least efficient part of the vertical market, software market. Um, so I think that, you know, with those sorts of decision rules in place and small enough discrete acquisitions that a system like that can work well. But I, the, the rules are still coming, the sort of, system the machine is has been put in place you know set in place by the by the ceo yeah yeah it's so uh the hurdle rates are magnetic comment anybody who hasn't um read some of uh mark's uh mark's old shareholder letters that he used to do and now he does q a on the website where he talks about this it's well well worth your time um all right ben grinall you're up next perfect so I had a question around acquisition integrations. Um, it, it's pretty apparent in the book that the CEOs across the board were really good at identifying uh, exceptional value in the acquisitions they made. But from um, some of the HBS research that's been done around like 70 to 90% of acquisitions end up failing for various reasons. Did you come across or did any of the students come across any research where um, the CEOs did something exceptional from an integration standpoint to make those more valuable than just identifying um, a good initial purchase? Yeah, that's, that's a, a good question, Ben. The, the, yes, the short answer is yes, they were all you know, excellent at integration. Integration was a key, key component of the total value creation. And generally across the group, the acquisitions required, the integration resulted in meaningful near-term cost savings and thus EBITDA growth. So it's very, very high probability these CEOs could model like a, a very near-term first 12 to 24 month improvement in operating cash flows, almost always from something specific on the cost side, right? So the most specific example is the example of TCI's programming discounts where they would buy a cable system and literally the next day, they would buy all of the programming for that acquired system using their programming discounts, which were typically you know 25 to 30% lower than the predecessor company. So overnight, the cost structure was dramatically changed. In the case of Capital Cities, it was a more of a lean operating system. But whenever Capital Cities bought a new newspaper, television station, whatever, they would very quickly implement their operating model. And it meant that with high probability, they could reduce costs. And the most specific example there was the acquisition of ABC. When they, in the first um, 18 months, reduced improved operating margins by 1,000 basis points while improving the ratings of those stations. So they didn't sacrifice the quality of the programming, but they just ran the operations more efficiently. And so, so integration was essential and almost always there was some very specific program around, you know, cost side improvements um, that, you know, that was core to the logic for the acquisition. It's an interesting difference from David and Ben's episode on the 10 greatest acquisitions of all time, where, in almost every case, there was some form of revenue synergy there, or some. It, re, the, the logic for those was not cost-driven, or at least there there may have been a 
cost component, but it was a relatively minor piece of the logic for those deals. So just very interesting to see that difference. But in the book, that was the integration was essential. So one, one to add on to that. So one part of the question is, was it, was it something exceptional they did in the way they communicated to the rest of the organization? Because it, like, from what, what I understood in the book, um, many of the CEOs were great about decentralization of operations and decision-making other than capital allocation, which David had touched on saying, there's one point person makes the decision and go. Um, was there something that they did from from a an engagement standpoint to get all the like this new team, this greater team, everybody moving one foot in front of the other at the same time that said, "Here's our mission. Here's what we're doing, and why go now? You're you're autonomous to make those decisions." Ben, do you mean with the acquired companies? So, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 They um. They. They did, and it, it, I th trying to boil that down into something that's you know crisp, but um, just extreme uh, extreme candor and and clarity around kind of how how they were going to be running the business going forward in the first ninety days. It's actually a very you know the best example of this is the the way that Capital Cities integrated ABC. These two entirely different cultures. And there's actually a very good book um, called Three Blind Mice that was written by a guy named Ken Auletta, who's the New Yorker's Ooh. media guy. I didn't know about this. Back in the 90s. And it's about, it's about the three networks back then. And each of them had undergone an ownership change very recently around that period of time, around 1990. Capital Cities bought ABC and NBC was purchased by GE. And then Larry Tisch, the Tisch family, bought CBS. So it's the story of what happened, and and it's a it, it explains why Capital Cities, which was itself a broadcaster before they bought the network, was sort of uniquely able to blend two very different cultures. And of course, as you I mean, Capital Cities was the training ground for Bob Iger, right? Who ultimately he ultimately went out to run ABC Entertainment. Once the ABC, he was part of that integrate his. He's, he, he was a key agent of that integration when Capital Cities bought ABC. And then, of course, once Disney bought the combined entity, he flourished there. And his book, which you got the Disney Plus episode, which I also listened to, is very good. Does a good job. But Iger's amazing. But a lot of what Bob, that Bob Iger still, when he was CEO of Disney across those major transactions, every single time he consulted Murphy. Murphy and he remain very close to this day. Tom Murphy's 95, but still on the Berkshire board, still active. Anyway, Ben, does that, so I, mean, I guess I, so read that book. Crisp, the, the crisp thing would be in the first 90 to 120 days, very open, clear communication, um, which would include discussion of, you know, mission, values, culture, and then any changes, any leadership changes, um, or, or, you know, cost side reductions, headcount reductions, you know, always, you know, implemented in the first six months post acquisition, not drawn out over time. Very cool. And, Thank and you. To, to jump in, like Ben, I think the thing that you're probably, you asked a research based question, but I think you're probably informed the same way I am by the way that we sort of observe this in the tech industry. I think there's very, people are often kidding themselves when they do acquisitions of what the synergy, synergies are going to be if and they're also not straightforward about headcount reductions around merging groups together they're um oftentimes i think uh tech ceos um build a culture of transparency and in many ways niceness and it feels wrong to play this sort of like overly heavy-handed um i'm buying you for this specific thing of your business i'm going to roll it in here so i'm going to realize all that value and then i'm going to let a bunch of your team go it feels draconian and i think it's counter to the culture that a lot of these ceos try to build and so then they end up even though that's where the most of the value might be um i think they end up in these difficult situ situations over and over and over again where they even convince themselves that that's not how it was going to turn out. And then you, that's when you end up with a massive culture clash or um, big disagreements over what the internal decision should be, or people feeling like they got 
uh, soul a lemon. I mean, I, I think it's a, frankly, I think people don't have the hard conversations early enough. Yeah, I think sort of radical candor would be, a, you know, candor and rationality were core principles for this, for this group. And Ben, I'm reading your comment in the chat, which I agree with. I think, you know, cost side synergies are just generally higher probability and more repeatable, but there's more upside with true revenue synergy. It's rarer, um, but I think it's more common in technology companies than it is, you know, more broadly in the, you know, in the broader economy. Cool. Yeah. Fun. Um, Bob Iker aside before, uh, Josh, I think you're up next. Um, uh, we'd, uh, Ben and I went on, uh, Jason Picalcanis' podcast again yesterday. And, uh, Jason said we were talking about Kevin Mayer and TikTok and, um, Jason said at some point that, oh yeah, like, you know, Kevin came from, um, uh, I think he was actually defending Kevin, but he said, you know, Bob Iger was just like a corporate, you know, gun hired CEO at Disney. And we were like, hold on. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, yeah. That guy is like, let's look at the records to... do the math. Right. Well, yeah. as, as it, the point Jason was like, he was trying to say Iger didn't have a founder mentality at Disney and we're like, if anybody could ever have a founder mentality of a company that they didn't found, like Iger is the classic case. All right, Josh, uh, jump in. I guess I was really curious, like how much financial engineering kind of went into like a lot of these like managers, um, like, you know, the ones that struck me that like the most were like taking like owned property and kind of like restructuring it to like, just make, you know, like, to, you know, because like the return, might be great but like it's way better if you don't have any like capital tied up in all these like various um pieces to it but that kind of like makes me wonder you know is that like a lot of these strategies are like for like high capital expenditure businesses where you could pay all up front or you could like kind of finance them like amortize those costs over the length of the business which is obviously much better from a return perspective if you're actually exceeding the hurdle rate for like what you can get financing it yeah um so I think, I mean, financial engineering is a pejorative term, right? I think, you know, generally. Yeah, I'm not using it pejoratively. No, no, I just want to, so, 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 so I think that, um, I, I just like the idea of rationality around these decisions, right? I mean, if you're, if you're running a business, you want to be rational about how you source and how you allocate capital, right? So if you're in a business that is capital intensive and you have a creative way to finance some of your, you know, chunky CapEx items, bricks and mortar, whatever they might be, that frees up capital that you can then productively invest elsewhere. That just seems rational to me. Like that's, you know, so I, um, and, and how you finance these, the enormous value can be created over long periods of time and how you finance these things. And that can be through debt for sure, but it can also be through equity. You know, the, one of the things that's oversimplified, I think, in the book is, in fact, there's a funny story. The book is translated into Japanese. And the subtitle in Japanese reads, don't pay dividends, repurchase your shares. Or words to that effect, which is a dramatic oversimplification. <laughs> That's amazing. That's not really, uh, and the fact, yes, all these CEOs did end up repurchasing shares, but um, also significant value was added by issuing shares at high PEs. Singleton did it. The first part of his career is a story of him buying companies at, you know, 10 times earnings while issuing stock at 25 to 50 times earnings, right? So he created a lot of value doing that before the PE and his stock fell and he switched and began to repurchase shares. Um, similarly for Buffett, you know, the largest acquisition that Berkshire has ever made as a percentage of its enterprise value is General Re, reinsurance company that it bought in 98. It paid for the whole thing with stock, right? Buffett's famous for not using stock. The largest deal he ever did, he did all with stock. The stock at that point in time was trading at three times book value. So if you pull up like a, a price to book value chart for Berkshire, it looks like Mount Fuji. It's like, and the absolute summit point is 1998 when he does the Gen Re deal, right? So, you know, so financial, and I mean, so, so that's just rationally trying to source capital in a low cost way and then deploy it into things that have high probability attractive returns I don't know, Josh, if I'm answering your question, but um, I guess I was just more thinking of like how to like, you know, like if you look at some businesses that try to be like highly acquisitive, right? Like it seems like a lot of the 
initial upside for a lot of these acquisitions was the ability to kind of like dramatically improve their financial structure, like less like calling it like financial engineering. Um, and like, obviously, if you, you could like, let's say you bought like a, like a company bought a large, like a large tech company, bought another large tech company, and they kind of kept them as a standalone business, that company could then issue additional equity or debt and like a way that like might fit kind of their operating business. But it seems like less likely for those same tools to kind of like improve, to even be available to improve the operational efficiency of those types of businesses. Yeah, so th that's helpful. Thank you. That's, that's helpful clarification. Yeah, so that, what you just described, Josh, that does strike me as financial engineering, right? I mean, that's trying to assemble pieces to get enough size that you can, quote unquote, lower your cost of capital by, you know, accessing, you know, different sources of debt financing or equity financing. So the underlying premise there isn't, look, we can, we can buy these companies and we can improve their cash flows and grow them you know, systematically that way. It's more the, the let's get big so we have financing options and we can create an arbit arbitrage of some sort between the cost at which we're financing things and the ability to, it's, it's the sort of mindset that in consolidations, sometimes you see this in private equity where the goal is to buy lots of little companies at low multiples, pull the, put them together into a larger corporation and sell them on exit and, and the majority of the returns comes from the multiple expansion from the arbit. The whole thing is premised on the ability to expand the multiple. And we just, we're always extremely skeptical of that. Like the, the only way these things work is if you can make an interesting return with entry multiple equaling exit multiple, no multiple expansion. If you're counting on multiple expansion, that's a, that's a fool's errand. That's a, that is financial engineering. And then, you know, how much leverage are you supposed to, you know, can you use? It, that's very much dependent on the you know, nature of the revenues, how strongly recurring are they? And you always want to be conservative in your assessment of that, you know? And so it, it's very common in private equity to see what you're talking about, which is very high degrees of leverage relative to the predictability of the revenue stream. And then, a, you know, sort of a, if you looked at the, the components of the core IRR, you know, the core IRR and the base case model, it's, it's heavily concentrated on being able to buy these things at five or six times and sell them at eight to 10 times to another private equity owner. So that's a, that's a different game, I think. I kind of get what you're saying, but I, I feel like some of these, the deals in the book kind of feel like that a little bit, at least initially, right? Like, cause they wouldn't have done the deal ha had it not been for the ability to unlock a lot of the capital that was available, that was like going into the investment, like, and sometimes it looks like when in acquisition, it looks like financial engineering in that way, but it also is like a way of kind of getting at like the core piece of the business that you're like, that's actually making money in some ways too, because you're like, oh, well, if we're only making money because we own these properties, then we're not really making money. You know, like we should sell the business and lease out these properties as a landlord or something like that. Like, you know, you yeah. kind of have to. Yeah, I think I, I, I think I disagree with you on that. Slightly, Josh, in that I don't think um, I think for the for the this group as they modeled out acquisitions, that the return was coming almost exclusively from cash flow growth, not multiple expansion, and they were also applying prudent leverage, right? So there was a, you know leverage and cash flow growth were the drivers, as opposed to multiple. But that that cash flow growth piece of it is very very important and, and very differentiated. And I think if you look at the 75 to 90 percent, you know, whatever that number is that was referenced in the earlier question of acquisitions that fail, it's because they don't, they're, they're not able to realize the, the modeled projected operating improvements in the acquired company post-acquisition. Maybe in combination with that, they took on debt to do it, which obviously, you know, compounds that problem. But um, I think that's, that's typically the underlying, the underlying reason that acquisitions, you know, don't you know, um, shrink shareholder value versus creating it. Makes sense. Um, all right, Packy, jump on in. Right. Uh, thanks for doing this. Love of the book. My questions are kind of on both sides of really the prime capital allocation period. So I was listening to a podcast with John Collison of Stripe this morning. He was referencing the book um, and talking about the fact that at some point you switch from an early startup to a capital allocator. 
And then, then on the other side, so I guess the question is, what is that point? And then on the other side, when you're looking at uh, Iger leaving Disney, what do you kind of predict happens there when you, when you lose your capital allocator? Yeah. So that, yeah, that Packy, that's a really good question. I think that is it, that, that John uh, is correct that, you know, for founders, we see this in our companies, which are, you know, they, they have revenue and cash flow and we get involved, but typically for the first 24 to 36 months, even in a private equity investment, there isn't a giant um, conundrum around capital allocation. It's sort of clear how you're going to source the capital and what it's going to be deployed into, right? So that the, the opportunity to allocate across multiple options is the result of success down the road, you know? And so in a, in a founding startup situation, you know, you're, you're going to source equity capital, maybe some venture debt, but equity capital, you're going to do that at the best possible price, right? So the you know, lowest possible cost, the least possible dilution, then you're going to invest it as efficiently as possible in growing the business to the point it can be self-sustaining. And then past that point, as it continues to grow and generate recurring free cash flow, you, you're then in the high class position of being able to decide how to allocate that cash flow and the related debt capacity, or if the stock is trading at a high PE, the ability to issue it. You can then figure out how you want to source capital and what, what projects to deploy it into. But that having that array of options and, and choosing amongst them is a function of you know, more mature businesses or businesses that have already had a degree of success. That's, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and then to your second question, um, it, Disney, I, you know, it, it's a good, I mean, I, I, I don't have a, I'm not as knowledgeable, although having listened to the Disney plus episode, I'm feeling, you know, well equipped, but I, I do think they've made sort of a fascinating large, you know, Iger on the way out made a fascinating gigantic bet. Um, around Disney Plus, and um, it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out over time. I, I think that's going to turn out to have been brilliant, you know, that he's going to have effectively, I mean, it's this broader trend, right, that you're seeing in the economy where businesses are increasingly moving to subscription models, kind of even in places you had never expected in the oldest industrial parts of the economy. And as a result, those businesses are just getting better. They're getting, the businesses are becoming more predictable as a result of that. I think is Disney is if Disney is su successful with Disney Plus, it's going to much higher percentage of its revenues are going to be recurring revenues, right? It's that's super positive, but it it will be it's a giant bet, including the you know including the acquisition of the the Fox assets. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I don't think as a result of all that that um, Iger's successor. He, he, he's going to have to be optimizing around that bet, you know, for, for a, a long period of time. I don't think he's going to be making a lot of large move the needle capital allocation decisions in the next 24 to 36 months, but, but we'll see. And it's smiling here. This is exactly the point he made to Jason <laughs> yesterday. I mean, well, it's just very clear. Like Bob couldn't stay away. I, I think, uh, they picked someone who is an execution guy who's going to run the same, who's just going to let the strategy play out. Um, but then obviously in tumultuous times, Bob came back to just make sure a little um, needed to do anything crazy that he was the one. Oh, sorry. I keep falling out guys. Um, but anyway, yeah, Bob, Bob coming, Bob coming back to make sure that if they did need to shift strategy at all in this, then it was congruent with his previous strategy and not someone sort of, new with an incongruent strategy. So yeah. I, yeah, I guess similarly, uh, did I'm trying to reflect back on any of the chapters. Um, Will, do you, was there an example in the book of someone who is an amazing capital allocator being succeeded by someone else who is an amazing capital allocator, like double outsider CEOs in a row? Yeah. General, general dynamics is the, That's right. is the example of that. And, um, yeah, so it, you know, two two exceptional capital allocators sort of back to back there. Actually, by the way, that has continued. General Dynamics continues to have sort of differentiated DNA around capital allocation. So um, that continues sort of two further CEOs down the road. You can sort of look at their their returns again relative to the peers, which is that's the way to evaluate performance. I think over time, sort of this duplicate bridge idea. But yeah, there, there's one example of that in the book, Ben. It's it's uh, General Dynamics. 
That's right. Um, I want to hop in, Chris, we'll get to you in one sec, but uh, grab the mic and hijack for a sec. Uh, since Packy just asked uh, you know, his question, um, can we talk about Tencent for a minute? Will, I'm just, so we, we've touched on it a little bit in this session already, but um, you know, there's this growing meme in, in large part forwarded by, by Packy of uh, Tencent as uh, an ultimate outsider company and certainly excellent capital allocator right now. Um, Will, have you thought about the company? Uh, what are your uh, What are your thoughts? Yeah, so um, a, a little bit, David, and, and coincidentally, I've, um, a couple of investors who I'm quite close to have, had reached out to me in the last sort of sixty days on Tencent, specifically, and, and specifically in those conversations, the analogy of TCI arose independent of that blog. But I mean, I think that in, that analog that analogy is just really accurate spot on i think it's just it's fascinating to i was not prior to that really you know really familiar with tencent and it's amazing to see how they've i mean i like the distinction you guys draw between platforms and aggregators you know the the platform the power of that platform is extraordinary and they've done an, an excellent job optimizing around that um it's amazing to see the ownership interests in that range of businesses, including Tesla. I know. It's just amazing to see that. Um, I mean, I think generally sort of this generation of um, technology CEOs get really, really high grades for capital allocation, which I don't think you could have predicted. I think overall, I mean, you know, there, there's some, that it's too early to make the call on some things, but just going through that list of, you know, again, your top 10, um, it's pretty, Google's record is pretty extraordinary. Facebook's record. I mean, we'll find. I guess we still have to see how you know some of the some of the bets play out. But Instagram is pretty no doubt. Extra, even just Instagram and what's and, uh, yeah, it's just so it's, it's sort of interesting. But Tencent, I'm, I, I think that's a really interesting and, and apt you know analogy. Yeah, and also just so like Pony doesn't talk to anybody. Basically, he sits there in Hong Kong and. Um, you know, they're very, very happy with relative obscurity for a, you know, $650 billion market cap company. Well, I do think a piece of that that is worth looking into that you guys might find interesting is spending a little bit of time on the NASPERS piece of it. And there's, a, you know, there's this entity process, which is the spun off NASPERS technology interests. So Tencent is, you know, 90% of the value there, but there's other interesting, amazing stuff there. And if you just read the way that you read the, the way they describe what they're doing, their philosophy, how their compensation systems work, there's a deep history of kind of rationality and capital allocation. And um, there that I think the Tencent team is benefiting from. And I don't think that's necessarily fully appreciated. I mean, Pony Ma is amazing. I mean, the, the team at Tencent is amazing, but the the linkage of those two is is very powerful. And I think the NASPERS piece, you know, maybe is, is not as well understood maybe. Yeah, I hadn't, thought well, I hadn't heard of process. I'm, I'm excited to go dig into that. Check out process and check out just the, just the reading, the specifics. It's a little bit like Mark Leonard, like read this, you know, or actually that group of, in Francesca's question, NVR's letters are excellent. Credit acceptance letters, top five letters anywhere. They, you know, those are great letters. Generally, these there's something about this this general philosophy. It lends the people who are successful at it are often very clear, crisp communicators in their letters. Um, and the process, you know, the process materials are good on that dimension too. There's a uh, one follow-up question that I have here. You so you mentioned uh, the tech CEOs of this generation are unexpectedly good capital allocators. Uh, on our call last week, Will, you mentioned like the the generation prior to this one wasn't as much. And I, I I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like why is it that when we look at today, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, um, I'm trying to not say Fang to not include Netflix. Um, but you get what I'm saying. The, these sort of companies that are responsible for most of the growth in the S&P over the last, especially six months, but five years. Um, why why have they been so excellent when the like 2000 to 2010 weren't? 
It's a good question, Ben. I mean, I think if you look at that group, it's Microsoft, you know, pre, pre Nadella, right? Microsoft, yeah. really hard to make a case. They were good at capital allocation, right? Just, you know, in, um, Dell, Cisco, you know, Apple pre, you know, so there, I think there was a general mindset in those companies. They're near enough to the founding era that the default capital allocation alternative was R and D. That was sort of the, that was the mindset. Understandably, that is what had gotten them. And I think for most companies, there is a default capital allocation outlet, something that they're good at. Like for Mark, it's buying vertical market software companies, right? For, you know, this is sort of a, you, you know, so, um, and the key is to have, you know, hopefully if you're publicly traded, you've got that. And then every morning you can repurchase your shares and you better than anyone else can calculate the IRR from repurchasing your shares and markets are efficient. Most of the time that return is not going to be interesting every now and then it's going to be interesting. And when it is, you should buy it. And then it's just a handy yardstick. Um, but those that prior generation, they, they didn't repurchase shares. They didn't generally acquire companies. And when they did, they were terrible diversifying acquisitions, not things that were strengthening or around existing core cores. Um, they didn't pay dividends. I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating dividends. They didn't even pay special dividends. They had, you know, it's actually, a, in, you know, in the book, there's a section on this because it, that at the time the book was being written in that sort of 09 and 09 to 012 period, kind of when the markets were really still recovering from the you know, financial crisis and uh, the technology companies were trading at many of them single digit PEs. They had gigantic cash balances and they just sat on them. Um, and Microsoft is a stark example, right? Because you have a leadership change. Look at everything that's happened since Nadella took over. It's really remarkable. And a lot of it's capital allocation related. Similarly, Apple, you know, Apple's done a bunch of interesting things capital allocation wise. And then the new, I can't explain why the new guys are so, you know, quote unquote, the new guys are so, but they've, they've been savvy about it. They've, I think they're just, I don't know, right? more thought, more open to acquisitions, more, more open to creating value in, in other ways. I wonder if part of it has to do with um, just the business models of those companies and of technology as it's evolved in the last few years with the advent of SaaS and and with social media and you know advertising and being more of a <laughs> capital cities type dynamic versus old school software, you know, Oracle, Cisco, Microsoft, Prenadella. You're talking about build large R and D projects, capitalizing software large sales forces to sell it. Um, that's just a way more capital intensive business. So if your mindset is already in, I'm gonna build something light, I'm gonna stick it into a you know subscription or subscription like business that's easy to acquire customers, then you just start naturally looking for more opportunities to do that. Yeah, I think that that resonates with me, David. I mean, it, and then it's just amazing to your point, how capital efficient these business models are. I mean, if you look at the base of recurring free cash flow that the Fang company, I mean, just look at look at Facebook and Google, and then you look at the amount of equity required to create that. It's just it's just amazing. There's never been anything like it. They're just such incredibly capital efficient, equity efficient business models. And the prior generation in tech was you know, substantially more capital intensive, no question which probably led them to shepherd their capital. That was probably a reason that they were comfortable keeping so much cash as a percentage of enterprise value on the balance sheet. Yeah. All right. Sorry, Chris, that we hijacked you. Uh, jump on in. No worries. Uh, thanks for doing this, Will. I had a question about um, survivorship bias and how you thought about the, the companies and CEOs that you picked. And maybe there were just a scenario here maybe there were similar type of allocators or great ceos who um who who may have also done all the right things but not survived essentially so i, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that yeah the well that we basically used two tests chris to for inclusion right so and and both of them required um looked at very long-term records so the idea was in order to evaluate a record, you really need to be able to see how a CEO has performed across multiple cycles, not just a single cycle, because you, you could have timing, sort of lock-in timing on either end of a cycle and on a record that looked great. 
Um, and so the, the, the average tenure in the book is, is 20 years. Now that's, that's the average and it's skewed a bit because there's some exceptionally long tenured CEOs in there, including Buffett. Um, but the two tests were better performance relative to the S&P than Jack Welch had during his 20 years at GE. That was, that was Welch's tenure. That's sort of the absolute return threshold. But I think the more relevant test is performance relative to the peer group, right? So dramatic outperformance over long periods of time relative to the peer group. You know, and the idea there being, you know, this idea of duplicate bridge, right? Where everyone's dealt effectively the same hand over long periods of time in an industry. So if one company significantly outperforms the peer group, it's worthy of study. That was basically the, you know, the idea around each of these things. And so, you know, the, the, those were the, those were the, that was the core sort of filter that we used in, in finding it. Um, you know, I think there are for sure false positives, right? So the, the clearest example of that is Mike Pearson at Valiant, right? And Mike Pearson was at Valiant for seven years. And for the first six of those, he looked pretty good, right? On, on, a, on a lot of these dimensions, right? And then, and so, you know, and, and part of it, there's, that's a very comp, there's a lot, there's a lot there to unpack. Can, can you summarize that real quick? I'm not super familiar with Valiant. I assume other folks may not be too. Okay. So Valiant, that's just an extraordinary, someone, I think someone's working on a book that will be an incredible book when it comes out. Um, Valiant was a pharmaceutical company run by a guy named Mike Pearson, um, who had run McKinsey's worldwide pharmaceutical practice. So talented guy. Um, he was brought in by activist investors to run the, this pharmaceutical company. And he brought with him sort of two insights from his years, years at McKinsey. The first was that pharmaceutical companies generally overspend on R and D that there are sort of rules of thumb industry conventions that you ought to spend, you know, 8% of your revenue on R and D and everybody does it, but they get very, very poor returns overall on those investments. It's sort of done reflexively. And the second insight was that, um, acquisitions that leverage existing sales forces and distribution channels can be highly accretive, right? So you can sort of come in with these insights and he pretty quickly did some, you know, lowered the R and D spend. He did some acquisitions. Those acquisitions were accretive, used debt to do those. Um, the stock did phenomenally well. And then sort of halfway along, he, um, stock had gone up a lot. He signed a new compensation, a very aggressive compensation deal that was famously asymmetric and gave him the opportunity to earn a billion dollars, right? So he got a lot of headlines, but it was asymmetric. And that only happened if he got, you know, a 35% IRR from this already high stock price level. And his pace of activity began to pick up very dramatically after that. And I'm going into maybe more detail than you want, but. Oh, it's actually fascinating. He ended up doing a, you know, a lot of acquisitions, a lot of debt, a lot of it was premised. What he began to default to was just, blatant price increases for niche pharmaceutical products. So he got regulatory attention for that. And it then, it then became clear that there was some accounting fraud and the whole thing began to unwind. Um, and so it was a very dramatic Icarus like story. Um, but, but it's for, for a long time, it was hard to unpack that. And un, he did an interesting thing where he, he, um, headquartered the company in the Netherlands to get a lower tax rate, which was prudent in one sense, but also removed a key sort of um, check and balance on the system. So he, he then, because he wasn't paying any taxes, his goal was just to grow EBITDA as fast as possible to build leverage capacity. And so he sort of got on this treadmill the incentive. It's a, it's really a story of incentives at some level and, and hubris and, Show it's me the incentives high. and I'll show you, I'll tell you the behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Munger, Munger has a fair amount of really good quotes relating to Valiant specifically, which he was on early, by the way, he, he spotted that one early on. Yeah. Um, this has been awesome. I don't want to take too much more of your time. Will. Um, maybe, uh, one last question for me. And if, if anybody else has any 
burning questions, uh, think of them and, and jump in quickly. Um, but uh, Honam at uh, at Altos would be uh, would be angry at us. We didn't ask his question. He's uh, he really wants to know how you chose the furry animal for the CEOs because he fervently believes they should be hedgehogs uh, yeah. as outsiders, not foxes. So what's what's the story of uh, 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 Jim Collins is famous, you know, furry animals for CEOs. How, why, why are they foxes in the outside? Yeah. And I've actually had this debate with Jim Collins. So I had Jim, Col Jim Collins was a lecturer at the GSB when I was a student there. So I actually had him as a student. And so he, he and I had this conversation. He asked the same question and, and pushed hard. I, I, I think that, um, I think that they are net foxes. And the, the reason is that if you look at the most, maybe the most surprising finding in the whole book is that all eight of the CEOs were first time CEOs, like eight for eight, half of them under 40 when they got the job. You know, so they just this interesting, this idea of, of, you know, talented newcomer comers figuring things out. The power of that I think is, is a core touch point for all eight of them. And it's this idea that foxes, they're rangy. You know, they, they bring learnings from different areas. You know, they, the hedgehog knows one thing, right? That's the, you know, going back to the original, you know, Isaiah Berlin, right? So, or Tolstoy, or, you know, the hedgehog knows one thing, yeah. the fox knows many things. It's that many things piece that I think was, you know, Malone came into the cable industry from a totally different background with a very, you know, analytical mindset. And he just systematically thought about how do I create the most per share value over time? Like, what do I do? Same with Singleton. Both those guys were sort of high level PhD quant math types. And um, so I think it, I, I come down on the side of Fox, but, but it's a fair point because once they're in the company and they've sort of figured out what the key levers are, they do focus intently on those. So maybe they're Fox foxes who then eventually develop a hedgy, hedgy <laughs> focus, you know, in one, in one core, you know, default capital allocation area. But I think Fox is first. Yeah. Love it. I'm going to exactly. defend the furry animal. Yeah. <laughs> it also strikes me um, how many, you, you talk about this in the book, but how many of the CEOs are engineers and come from an engineering background, which I think is related. We um, will release this hopefully next week, but we just did a huge episode on Epic Games and yeah. Tim Sweeney, the CEO of Epic is like the ultimate, you know, both engineer and outsider CEO. I mean, he, oh, cool. um, he takes an engineering mindset to, to everything, but um but he also just like literally doesn't care about anything else. Like he's not married. He doesn't have kids. He just only cares about Epic and like preserving forest land in North Carolina. Like he, he just literally does not care about anything else. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I look forward to listening to that episode. Thank you guys for having me, uh, having me on for this. Thanks Appreciate so much. Well, take care everyone.